Well, welcome back to this Action RC podcast series, a summer series for 2022. We're exploring, as we do, RC racing in Australia. Special nod to the history of our sport, but a look to at contemporary events, interesting people, places, and so on. Today is, for me, an exciting day, and those of you who know me well will know exactly why. Uh, on this podcast, we've chatted with people from all over Australia, industry figures involved in importing and distribution and retailing, uh, the homegrown origins of manufacturers, history, of course, world championship racing, all of these kinds of things. Today, though, we go deep inside one of the most storied names in RC racing, a manufacturer who had their genesis in the heady days of 12-scale racing back in the late 70s and early 80s that has gone on to build race cars that have won races literally across the world. A couple of world championships along the way in 10th off-road and 12th on-road, and most recently the 2022 IFMA World Cup for F1 a company that is very much loved in the vintage and the contemporary race scene. It is Britain's Shoemaker Racing. That's why I'm excited, uh, but I'm delighted to be joined today by Managing Director Robin Shoemaker for a chat. Robin, thank you so much for joining me from the other side of the world to talk all things Shoemaker. Thank you, Scott. That's a lovely introduction and uh, pleased to be here. Excellent. Can I take you... Uh, I guess, can we begin by taking uh, you all the way back to the very beginning? And lots of our listeners are deep into the vintage scene. Uh, so they're interested in these kind of origin stories. But how, just, you know, give me a little sense of how it all began for Shoemaker, those first few years. Um, it began when uh, my dad, Cecil, bought me a car for my, I think it was my 14th birthday. Okay. He bought me a, a Mardave one twelfth scale car. Wow, that's and another great British car. In, indeed, yeah. yes. Yeah. Um, this was back in 1978, which was the very early days of electric car racing. It's uh, yeah. at the time, NICAD batteries were only just powerful <laughs> enough to, to to power a one twelfth scale car at a very modest speed. Um, so that, that's how we started. Uh, I started racing twelfth scale as a yeah, right. as a teenager and um then the the first product was, was the ball differential okay. um the uh, at the time the the cars were on a solid axle okay. so uh it was uh lots of understeer and then snap oversteer <laughs> <laughs> what a delightful way to drive a race car so so yeah. your dad came up with that and started building uh, those ball lifts and that's the beginning for shoemaker that's right. At the time, uh, Cecil was a design engineer at Cosworth, okay. uh, working on Formula One engines and transmission systems. Wow. Um, so his yeah his career was a professional engineer in in uh, yeah. in motorsport, and uh, so in his spare time he came up with the ball differential and uh, uh, d designed that for to fit the twelfth scale cars and. And the business started as a part-time business okay. in the garage at the side of the house, making ball <laughs> differentials. <laughs> that's a that's a wonderful story. And then, and and I gather not too long after that, a couple of years down the track, then it becomes a twelve-scale chassis. That I think it was called the XL, the first one, and then the C car, very famed through those middle eighties. Yes. That's that's the first cars. That that's correct. Yeah. Um, yes. After um, probably not that many months, I should think. Uh, Cecil got so busy making uh, diffs in his weekends that um, 
uh, uh, he uh, then decided to leave his job at Cosworth and wow, that's make a, a big go call, of it full time. It? <laughs> that's yeah. a big call. That's wonderful. Uh, I'm, I'm I'm curious about how how he and the company went from. I mean, a 12-scale car in those days was a relatively simple kind of a thing. And if I recall correctly, the XL car was a folded Lexan car and then the C car, you know, that kind of typical fiberglass chassis of the day. But from that, to step from that to the cat, that first four-wheel drive buggy, when did that come out? Around 1986. That seems like a big step and a big kind of growth in capability for the company. That must have been quite an exciting time in terms of the company and, and Cecil and the growth in capacity and ability uh, for the company to produce a car that much more complex than that. Yeah, yes, it was. Um, yeah, twelfth scale. We did okay on twelfth scale for a few years, and then, mm. then the off-road boom started in the early eighties. Uh, we started with importing the Bolink Digger mm. from America as our first sort of uh, step into off-road, and yep. then Cecil. Uh, um, Realised there was a lot of scope for improvement on our very <laughs> primitive buggies around at the time. Just a little, yeah. And uh, and yeah, it was it was a massive project, and it, it took him a long time to do. And it was all pre CAD days, so it mm. was all done on a with pencil and paper on a drawing wow. board, and a, an incredibly complicated project. Mm. Um, um, and uh, yeah, but it but it it was um it really moved things on a huge mm. step and uh, when it first came out it was a we had a bit of an unfair advantage on the track just a little first. i mean that that there was some extraordinary engineering in that cat and you know the way that i mean that i'm just fascinated now by cecil's mind to kind of you know and, and others in the group i guess that were supporting him that to come up with the design of that car which was so different to anything else that was around at that time um extraordinary yeah. Yes, Cecil has got a, a special talent for, uh, yeah, mechanical design. He can visualize yeah. things and come up with concepts that, uh, yeah, most of us can't. But yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. It's really that, that's his strength, certainly. Yeah, I, I want to come back to that kind of engineering focus in a little bit, but before we kind of leave that period, I'm just interested in, you know, that World Championship win in 1987. The the cat stretches to the longer wheelbase car. Um, it's put in the hands of the young Japanese driver Masami Hirosaka. But I guess my my curiosity is around what winning a world championship does for the the sense of the company, its self image, its confidence in competing on that world scale. Um, that must have been an exciting, a pretty exciting result for the company to win that world championship. Yes, it was huge. Yes, um, at the time, yeah, the company was still quite small and uh, um, and growing rapidly. I, th I think. I think it was still operating out of Cecil's garage at the time. So uh, it was. Uh, That's the best story. We had uh, several staff turning up for, for work, and the driveway was not enough room to put the cars in. So it was, <laughs> and you'd get delivery lorries <laughs> of, uh, turning up with parts that were. So, yes, it was becoming a bit of a problem for the neighbours. Yeah, anyway, yeah. finally, yes. yeah. uh, we moved out into an industrial unit, yep. and, yep. Uh, and the company grew. Rapidly, it's it's a time when the whole sport was growing. Uh, RC cars was a, was a hot new growth yeah. thing at the time, and and so the company grew as the as the hobby grew. And particularly that off road scene around that period of time, and that's a topic we've explored in this podcast a lot from an Australian perspective. But the extraordinary rapid growth in those middle eighties, um, 
uh, yeah, all over the world, really. Um, just want to stick with the World Championship um, kind of scene just for a moment longer, which is to say that the next time the Worlds was back in England in 1993, I think it was, um, the win almost happened again. I think the, the by that stage, we're up to, what, the Cougar 2000, the Cat 2000 prototype at that event, um, finishing second and third. Uh, but I did just want to ask you about another story that I came across just today or last night um, from that Worlds, that the story going that Jürgen Lautenbach of LRP, then also a Shoemaker factory driver, appeared with a traction control system fitted to his two-wheel drive, um, which would have been extraordinary. I think, if I understand correctly, that was not allowed to be raced. Um, but I wonder if, you know, do you recall anything of that story? Is there anything you can tell us about that uh, kind of almost opportunity to put that car on the track? Yeah, only vague memories, I'm afraid. Uh, okay. I, I, I do recall... Vaguely it happening, and, and yes, and traction control was banned. But um, you probably need to get Jürgen onto your podcast, I think. I'm that sure sounds like an excellent idea. Very happy to uh, give you all the details. On I that. will <laughs> see if I can chase him down. I would love to kind of just hear the inside scoop on that, on that story. Um, so we are always keeping a kind of an eye on the stories from the 80s and 90s in this podcast, and because it has had such an Australian uh, focus, I did just want to check in too on. Uh, your presence in the Australian scene during that period and working closely with uh, Colin uh, Greninger, particularly of Pit Stop Models. And um, just wonder if you had any reflections about Shoemaker's presence in Australia and, you know, uh, winning lots of races over that period here in partnership with Colin and others. Um, how important is it to Shoemaker to be a world, a worldwide kind of team and presence? It's very important. It's um, RC Cars is, is a bit of a niche hobby and, and so we yeah we can't survive on just the uk market it's mm. there's not enough races in in britain or even in europe to keep us going so it's it's, it's a worldwide uh, activity um and i know I, I personally have never been to australia unfortunately i'd oh. love to go one day well um, there's a thriving was, vintage yeah. scene here robin so you must come out yeah oh, that would <laughs> I, i'd love to yeah but Cecil came came out. Cecil and and, and Brenda, my, my mother, came out for the eighty nine yes the worlds yeah. and had a fabulous time. They they really enjoyed it very much. Um, we've uh, um, still got a a lovely uh, uh, clock on on the office okay. wall that was right. a gift from the organisers. Oh, um, wonderful! Because we were sponsor uh, of that event, yeah, and uh, it was a lovely clock mm. made out of a. A big piece of wood mm. and uh, yep. uh and yep. uh and um and also actually I, I listened to um last week's podcast and somebody mentioned there was a, a lack of photos of that event so i have found a, a folder of photos oh that, uh, we might have to see if the we 89 can worlds. get some so scans get those, of those uh, yeah that would be wonderful sent across to you I mean, to, it's a bit biased it, towards the English team, unfortunately. That's, but, that's uh, okay. Uh, I'm actually hoping to chat with Rory Cole in one of these podcasts shortly. He's now living in Australia and uh, pick yeah. his brains. One of, one of the curiosities for me about that event, particularly for the team coming from the UK, um, I guess just would be that the track conditions must have been like racing on the moon or something that, you know, really slippery, astro typical Australian conditions for us, but so very different to what would be normal um, you know, if I understand the UK racing scene uh, kind of well, you know, a lot of grass and a lot of that artificial sort of surface starting to appear. I just think an extraordinary result to put cars in the World's A final on such a foreign uh, racing surface as it must have been for the team. Yeah, yes. At the time, it was uh, mostly grass racing in England. 
um, it was after that that um, we uh, astroturf racing became really popular and, and carpet racing indoors and, and so yes usually we we have much higher grip tracks than, than you do <laughs> it's it's changed here now and we, and we might uh, tap into that a little bit later on when we start talking about current days um I do I do want to go back then to that kind of the sense of shoemaker being a company that at least from the outside always looks like it's been an engineering led firm and I guess that comes from Cecil and that you know so I'm curious about you know what it what it means within the company to be driven by those you know just fascinating kind of engineering solutions to the problems of RC and how much of that DNA of being an engineering driven firm has has kind of stayed with the company over the years is that is that still a you know a really important part of the life of the of the company yes yes it is uh, and that culture has has continued yes Essel mm. was very much an engineer traditional engineer and uh, I was not so interested in sales and marketing and <laughs> the other important parts of the business <laughs> that you have to do so you do. You it's do. uh and that yeah that culture has carried on and that's reflected in the the type of people who've joined the company since and um and uh, yeah I'm, I'm also an engineering background and okay. we have a great team of people in the company now of course it gradually changes over the years and we've got some really good young people now uh who've joined in recent years and but it is it, yeah it is engineering led still mm. yes we mm. still uh have several staff who are racing every weekend mm. and testing and trying things and working with team drivers and there's a lot of passion and enthusiasm for rc racing yeah. and that so it's really yeah it's driven from from, from being at the track from, yeah, from yeah. learning things yeah um and uh and and from racing and that then feeds through into uh new ideas and yeah. prototype parts things to try and test that then eventually come out in the car maybe a year or two later yeah yeah I, I was just thinking back over that that sort of period through the 80s and into the 90s around some of the I guess the innovations you know that, that crash back front suspension that was a part of those first few off-road cars that um, the kind of wonderful complexity of the the integrator kind of differential system in the original cat uh, that viscous drive system you know that came out a little bit later on and yes. even even that uh the active caster front end that you know emerged on the cougar 2000 around probably i think 94 around that period and then you built it for yes. other cars as well um you know any of those particularly kind of you know i guess strike a chord for you as you know good examples or good stories of the company at its best yes well and then the crashback was was cecil's solution to breaking front wishbones <laughs> uh, and he didn't want to make a big heavy chunky car that was uh um so yeah that, that was very innovative um the the visco drive was also very innovative it, it, but it was a bit of a niche thing it only worked in in certain very bumpy slippery yes. tracks yeah um, hello australia uh yes hello australia. yeah yes yes <laughs> i guess it was suited you yeah yeah um the other key engineer in the early days was Phil Booth, yes. who has been with the company for many years, and mm. Phil's still involved, even okay. though he's uh, um, in his 70s now and wow. just working part-time. Um, but Phil was our main race engineer in the 90s and 2000s and, and went with a 
the team to uh, uh, yeah, he was very much the man at the track and looking after the team, and was also very involved in a lot of the uh, yeah the innovative designs. He's mm. also a man very much like Cecil, who mm. doesn't want to just copy what's mm. out there. He's yeah, always yeah. trying to think out of the box and yeah. find different solutions to problems. You, you do seem to have had a a, a real. Um... I guess some thinking loyalty among some of those key people that have been involved in the company. You know, there must be something about being involved in the company that keeps some of those really key people like Phil around over, you know, long periods of time. Um, and, and maybe to, to a degree that's reflected in customers as well that are, you know, really loyal, that I guess love the way that you guys go about designing and building products. Uh, is it, Do you feel that sense of loyalty um, from the inside, from both your staff and, and customers? Yes, Uh yeah, definitely. Yeah. We've got a lot of staff who've been here a long time, a lot mm. of 20, 25 years. And I'm, I'm very proud of that, that we've mm. got very low staff turnover. Yeah. It's, I guess, it's, yeah, it's part, partly because a lot of people get into, got into it as a hobby first yeah. and then it became a job. Yeah. So they're doing what they enjoy doing, it's yeah. their passion. Yeah. Um, but also, it's, it's important that we have, a good working environment in the company and, mm. and, and make it um, an attractive place to work and and try and keep that all that knowledge and experience in the company. It's, yeah, yeah. Yeah, very valuable to us. You've been involved um, yourself for quite a long time. You've been managing director, you know, I understand for probably 20 years or so now. Is Was it inevitable, uh, Robin, that you would end up in the kind of role you're in? And how much do you enjoy uh, doing what you do, the chance to lead the company? Uh, I do enjoy it very much. I find it very rewarding. Um, it really is very satisfying when we produce a product and, and drivers and customers are happy with it and you see them at the track enjoying it. So, I, yeah, I, I do find that very rewarding. It's, of course, a challenge. It's always busy <laughs> running a business. It's, uh, um, But it's very stimulating and never a dull day. Um, yeah. It's... I don't suppose it was inevitable. I was involved in the business early on. Hmm. Then I took a break for a few years when I was in my 20s and wanted to try different things. Yeah. So I did leave the business for a hmm. few years. Uh, after, after I finished university, I did a few other things, travelled a bit, yeah. worked in London, worked abroad, and then decided that um, as Cecil was coming up to starting to think about retirement there was an opportunity there and yeah i should i should really take it and yeah, uh, yeah. so i came back and, and yeah. no regrets wonderful wonderful um let's keep kind of reflecting on the sort of the the engineering construction side of things the first chance i've had in this podcast to talk to a kind of a vehicle manufacturer a car manufacturer and i'm i'm just interested in you know talking through the sort of prototype design develop manufacture kind of process what you know, how do you guys go about that? What are the big steps from an idea to the release of a product? Uh, let's and we'll stay with the racing side of things. Um, you know, cars. Where, how does it all come together for you? Well, um, I guess it usually starts with with an existing car. It's not. It's pretty rare we we make something from scratch like the, yep. the first cat. Yeah. So usually we've got a car that we're racing every weekend, and we're continually trying to improve it especially racing at big international races where we're up against uh, high level competition yes. yep. and and often we we come across 
um, yeah, shortcomings where someone else's car is is better in in certain conditions on a certain grip level or a certain yeah. type of track, and and then we go back and think, well, what can we do to improve it? Mm. We are obviously influenced by uh, other people well, by mm. what yeah. they're doing on their cars, and and I'm sure if you went to the engineering office of uh, Associated or Yokomo, yeah. you find yeah. some of our cars. Yeah, um, but then yeah we, we get our heads together and discuss it and uh and think about how we can make things different mm. we make prototypes um try ideas um, often they don't work for various reasons mm. um initially it would be secret testing we go to a track somewhere and try things and try to keep it um on the down low uh, under wraps yeah, yeah. Uh, because it's not so difficult to make one prototype, but to go from there to make a batch of cars mm. it is quite a time-consuming process. And and if uh, we go to the track and uh, customers see it, they, they they want it tomorrow. And uh, yes. <laughs> and, and then if you say, well, six months if you're lucky, they yeah. get a bit frustrated on that. But uh, so we try and keep it under wraps. But but sometimes we need to test it at, at big races at, mm. and, and prove it mm. at. Uh, at a high level so yeah sometimes we'll race things in public especially if they're not not too visible changes yeah and then yeah we just it's just keep trying things i guess yeah yeah and uh keep trying to improve it and 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 there's there's always ideas come up we never seem to be short of ideas of what to do Mm. next even though we uh, and and usually I, i have to actually intervene in the process because the engineers will want to change <laughs> continuously they'll never want to sign a car off yeah. because every yeah. week they think oh well, maybe we can change this and this, this. Be better and then yeah and then i have to sometimes say well we, we really need to release a car by this date <laughs> and uh, you have to stop changing at some stage and, and yeah. sign it off and yeah and go into production mm. uh, and the the lead time to put a car in, into production seems to be getting longer all the time there's lots mm. of especially in since this last couple of years, I imagine yeah. that's really complex. Yeah, lots of delays from suppliers. Yeah. Um, so everything seems to take longer to get made, mm. and uh, and it's quite a time-consuming process. Mm. It, it can take uh, uh, many many months to mm. uh, get everything sorted from from signing off a design and releasing yeah. the drawings to get yeah. mold tools made and yeah. parts manufactured and. Uh, and and everything that goes with producing a car, yeah. even things like instruction manual yeah. and boxes, yeah. they're quite time consuming. The visuals and things. Yeah, yeah. Things to do. Yes. Yeah. It strikes me that, you know, with that with that process of all of that testing, design, testing, prototyping, you know, that relationship between your particularly your your leads drivers, if I can put it that way, people like Mikhail Olowski and your engineering team must be, you know, really close. They must work very closely together you know, to work out what the drivers need from the cars and, you know, what the engineers can produce. That relationship must be very important in the process. Yes, it is. And you need the top drivers to give you the good feedback. Mm. Uh, it's not much point me going to the local track and testing the new, <laughs> the latest new part because I think, well, feels about the same thing. <laughs> that's uh, right, but, that's right. <laughs> but then I, someone it... like Mikhail can can really feel a very subtle difference that, mm. that I can't. Mm. And uh, it might only be worth um, tenths of a second on a, on a five-minute race. Yeah. But but he can feel that difference. And, yeah. and 
and give us the good feedback yeah. and, and the pro drivers are uh are very good at that so you, yeah. you do need to work with them on mm. testing mm. and at the end of all of that a photograph of a cake appears on facebook and everybody knows uh, there's a new car coming uh, that day so what's what's cake day where did where did this cake story what's the origins of the cake tradition uh, within the team the company i don't remember when it started but everyone of course works very hard for many months to yeah. uh, get a new car to be launched and it's it's quite a relief when finally we get the cars out the door because always it's there's always last minute glitches and things that go wrong and so finally we we ship the cars out and, and it's a celebration of the company yeah. and, and yes nice. yes so to say a pat on the back to everyone say well done we we have cakes on on car launch day well as a customer i can say it's an exciting day for us too because it you know we know that today's the day today's the day um while we're, while we're on that topic of engineering design I, one thing i did just want to ask you about um, four-wheel drive cars in particular, both buggies and touring cars, you've had such a long and steadfast commitment to belt drive. And I think I'm right in understanding that every competition four-wheel drive car you've ever produced has been belt drive. And I'm just interested in the, you know, little of the philosophy, I guess, behind that, you know, how close have you come to exploring other drive systems? You know, what is it about belt drive that has, you know, been so synonymous with the company over so many years? Yes, uh, well, Cecil started it way back, in, in, and uh, I think we were one of the first, if not the first company to do a belt drive car mm. way, way back in the 80s. And it's it's a very efficient transmission system, mm. belts, especially um, especially at higher speeds. And it, uh, of course, we, we, we're always open-minded as to other mm. ways of doing things, and we have made prototypes and tested Ooh, other things over the interesting. years. Uh, I think we need to see some photos of those, Robin. <laughs> especially in the early days of touring cars. Uh, yeah. If you remember when, when yeah. there was a real uh, push to sh towards shaft drive. There was. Um, yeah. There was the uh, Associated and various mm. others did mm. shaft drive touring cars. And at one stage we were, we were very much in a minority. I think we were mm. one of maybe the only belt drive car at right. one stage. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And then it actually started coming back and uh we we, we stuck with it because we, all, we always felt that we did have an advantage mm. and then uh i think all the high-end touring cars are belt drive yes. now yeah that's right there are some disadvantages in terms of durability if it gets mm. on very um stony dirty tracks then mm. it, it's sometimes um hard to keep uh Keep a belt, keep stones out of a belt drive system, and, and hence why eight scale buggies tend to be shaft drive because of yeah. their long finals and tend to have very rough tracks. Mm. So there's there's pros and cons of both. Mm. There's no, mm. no yeah. clear cut. Yeah, not to say one's <laughs> definitely better than the other, but uh, it's yeah, long. It long us. may it continue. Long may it yeah. continue. Let's um let's detour for a moment to talk a little bit about the vintage uh, off-road scene. You've had such a strong, even fanatical, you know, I would say, following um, over many years, and you know, and now among vintage collectors and racers and so on. You know, I'm, I'm curious about you know what led to the decision to um, to re-engineer and re-release some of those classic cars under that the classic series um, name. You know, how how did how did you come to decide this was a good thing to do? Well, I, I didn't see it coming at all, the vintage okay. thing, a few years ago. And 
maybe 10 or 15 years ago, we had a clear, big clear out and threw away, oh, no. uh, filled a skip with old <laughs> parts, that, 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 which, of course, I regretted doing <laughs> shortly afterwards. But I know, vintage people, no, I was just yeah. going to say, vintage people all over the world are crying right now, going, oh, if we could have been there that day. Yes, yeah. yeah. But there was a time when no one was really interested in, no. in vintage. That's um, right. And then it just started, we started getting the odd phone call to saying, have you, have you got a part for this car or a part for that car? And then it took, took a while because I know, I think T Tamiya did some re-releases mm. first and Kyosho, and uh, I just wasn't sure how many people were, were really interested. Mm. Sometimes you can get a bit misled by a handful of really enthusiastic people. And then you think, <laughs> are there really all these people out there who want it or is it just... 10 people in the world who are really keen yeah who are ringing us up asking for it and uh so i went along to one of the iconic rc races in england it's uh, run by john weston okay. who's uh, uh was one of the pioneers of vintage racing in england okay. and that that really swayed it when i went to the first one of those and met quite a lot of people there mm. who I've got all sorts of interesting obscure yeah. cars, and it's incredible, isn't it? Uh, the cars you yeah. see, yeah. Uh, and and keeping them running was really remarkable. How they were yeah. very, uh, yeah, very difficult to find parts for them. Yeah. So people were coming with all sorts of homemade solutions for parts and things, oh. which I guess has now been made easier by by three D printing. Yes, yes. Uh, and and eventually, yeah, we decided there was enough interest hmm. to do it, and to do something and then i guess the most famous car was the original mm. cat that masami won the worlds with so yep. got in touch with masami and uh discussed it with him and uh he yeah he was all for it and agreed to endorse it and uh wonderful um and then uh we we did the project yes yeah. and, and it was it went very well mm. and then it it really boomed during the lockdowns, during yeah. the COVID lockdowns. It did, yeah. I think uh, we, a lot of people had a lot of more free time. <laughs> That's exactly <laughs> right. We're all locked up with nothing to do. That's right. Yeah. So people were building cars, and yeah. uh, even though we couldn't race them, mm. we had time to build them and yeah. socially yeah. distanced, something you can do. Uh, and and it really boomed during during mm. uh, that time, and, and but it has carried on since. Mm. The scene, vintage mm. scene is really strong. Yeah, and so you know you've now released uh, that that original cat, the top cat, uh, the cougar, and now most recently the pro cat. That the response has been good to all of those. Um, I mean, they're all iconic in their own way. Um, you've been pleased with the response from customers. Yes, yes, I have. Yes, mm. yes, it's gone very well. Yes, mm. and it's really, really nice. It's really quite humbling to see all the the passion and the enthusiasm for for. Yeah. For our old cars, it's really lovely to see. Yes. Yeah. Do you, Do you have a sense of where to from here? I, I mean, I you know, I guess you know, thinking about the history of the cars and the sequence and the commonality of parts. You know, cars like the Cougar Two or the Boss Cat, maybe the Storm Truck. You know, you can I can imagine that. You know, they're probably the logical next things to do if you continue. Um, is that is that kind of in the pipeline, or are we likely ever to see you get to the two thousand series cars, which are you know, marked such a step change um, in that kind of early 90s period? Um, 
probably will end up doing oh, them. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'll make some room on the shelf. <laughs> I think it'll take a while. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's still quite a lot of work yeah. doing these cars because whilst we've got some of the original tooling, hmm. some of it, uh, we used to modify mold tools back then. So, hmm. so quite often a cap part was heavily modified to make a pro cap part and then to yeah. make a boss cap part and then you can't then go back so we yes. have to retool yeah okay some parts and and injection mold tools are pretty expensive and yeah. then we've even managed to lose a couple of a few mold tools i don't know how to, we've moved, moved factories <laughs> since then last okay. last used 30 years ago and yes yeah then all the staff have changed and the factories changed and we can't find them so We've had to retool a few things, but we have had some of the original tooling, mm. uh, which has helped. Mm. So, I guess yes, it makes it, it's it's not such a big investment to do the next car in the sequence mm. compared to doing something completely different. Yeah. So um, I, I don't know yet. We've not yeah. finally decided yeah, what's yeah. going to be next. Oh well, we'll we'll watch this space uh, with bated breath. I, you know, I imagine that that particularly the 2000 series cars, which, you know, really did mark, you know, a huge change um, in that era uh, would be, that would be a big step. Um, but in the meantime, we'll look forward to what might come along. Um, I want to shift this. Sorry, go on. the car they started with. Oh, that's right. So, so, uh, so, yeah. uh, so when I talk to people, is the request is not, it would be easier if everyone requested the same car, <laughs> but they don't. They always want the one they started racing with. I can certainly say that you know my my all time favourite race car uh, was that that Cat two thousand of around nineteen ninety four, uh, you know. So if if that comes to be, I will have my name on the order list for sure. Uh, that was the race car I loved the most over all the years. Um, Robin, let's let's kind of drag ourselves forward into um, the the kind of modern time, and I'm you know I'm really interested in the way that the racing scene has evolved over the last few years and what that's kind of doing to design, you know, and particularly in, you know, from that engineering perspective that we spoke about earlier and how, how things might continue to evolve. And if, I guess if we stick with electric off-road for the moment, there's been such that trend or that move to high traction surfaces all over the world in the last few years. And, you know, whether that's grass or astro or carpet that we've talked about, but even the dirt surfaces now are so high traction, you know, treated with glue and all sorts of things. How much has that impacted on the way that you, you know, and your team go about designing and thinking about the next iteration of cars, just knowing that, you know, that kind of global shift towards high traction uh, off-road racing surfaces? Uh, yes, clearly it does affect the car. And, um, and yes, it's what, what you learn from, from racing on those surfaces that mm. there's been a lot of change, yeah, particularly two-wheel drive buggies, which mm. were all rear motor traditionally. Yeah. And then we've gradually had more and more forward weight distribution mm. um, together with suspension geometry changes. Mm. But but there is still some low grip racing around. So, yeah. so we do have to make a car that works on slippery tracks. And interestingly, even the um, the, the forward motor cars now work best on quite slippery tracks okay there's really hardly any conditions where you'd want a rear motor car now in the interior yeah. drive so we've learned more about uh, about how to make a better car i, I mm. guess it, it's uh um it, it's a very complex process all the different parameters and particularly ge geometry and weight distribution yeah. and polar moment and 
gyroscopic effects from the motor and all, all sorts of things make a difference and, and that putting all those together to make a car is infinitely complicated all those things nobody knew existed when they built the bowlink digger right back in those early 1980s That's right. Right? it is extraordinary yes. yeah, yeah. Um, do you see any signs of anything sort of different coming in terms of off-road um you know in terms of track or track design or racing trends that you know do you think we're likely to see any any new trends emerging or are we kind of still heading down that um high grip lots of jumps kind of uh, style of racing that we're seeing now yeah the high grip racing is popular i think i think racers tend to usually tend to like grip it just sort of makes life it's a bit easier if you've got plenty of grip, doesn't it? you can right. be a bit yeah be a bit heavy on the throttle and get away with things uh, and it generally uh is nice to drive so that that's been pretty popular and I don't see that going away. I don't see any transformational changes on the horizon. I mean, occasionally we get something big due to a new technology, such as um, 2.4 gigahertz radios yes. came in and, and yes. made, made a massive difference, made life easier. Mm-hmm. Brushless motors, yeah. lipo batteries was a big innovation mm. brought in by a new technology that we can mm. then apply to yeah. RC cars. So... Um, but I don't see anything transformational on the just, horizon at the moment. Just in the near term, of, yeah. Yeah, there's lots of, but there's always things we can improve. It's, yeah. it's, it's yeah. never ending. We, we've got a, a team of engineers who are every day are yeah. thinking of, of, of the next way to do things better. So, 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 yeah, so while we're on that, stops. while we're on that topic of you know, I guess small changes. Let's kind of flick over into the on-road world, if if you like. Um, particularly touring cars, but I think this would be true in 12 scale and Formula One as well. It, You know, the cars seem to me now to be so well-developed that from model cycle to model cycle, it's, you know, quite small incremental sorts of shifts. And that's a, you know, that would be a particular kind of engineering approach, I guess. I'm, you know, I'm curious about, you know, whether the, whether the team have identified particular areas for further development in say touring car design or, you know, where does the next kind of, platform come from after the mi8 for example um, do you see big shifts there is that going to continue just those little incremental changes i think the, the principles are um yeah i, I see incremental changes really in mm. touring cars um and um and on-road in general the, yeah the on-road scene is still pretty strong we're involved in 12th scale and mm. formula one and gt12 yes, um, yes, yes. so and and we're always open to looking at new trends as well. There's always new classes mm. growing in popularity, um, mm. and and people get a bit, I think, bored. You it gets a bit stale racing the same class all the time. So mm. people like to try different things. So there's always something new emerging. So we keep an eye on that, and there might be some other variation. Like Formula One has been quite mm. a new thing yeah. for us. We've not uh, not been in that for for so long. Yeah. Um, and and twelfth scale is relatively new. We came back to twelfth scale uh, a few years ago after a gap of quite a while, about, yeah, about thirty years, I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just a gap. small break, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, it, yeah, the, the, I mean that that you know, I guess that fascinates me. That um, you know, you. It, I get to see kind of, you know, what are the trends locally here around my city and, you know, to a degree around my country. And, but it, it's, you know, it must 
you know, you would have some insight into what's going on globally, you know, in terms of, say, the relative strength of on-road and off-road racing, for example. You know, you would have some insights into, you know, and when when the shift starts to occur, you know, when we, over the last few years, certainly in Australia, there's been a movement from on-road back towards off-road, um, say, over the last five to eight years. Um, you must start to see some of that shifting happening in sales of various platforms in different parts of the world and get a sense of where things are moving um, do you, are you keeping an eye on those sorts of, you know, those sorts of data and statistics and trends, so that you understand where things are heading? Yeah, I don't think we've got official statistics on anything, but yeah. uh, but we do talk to lots of people, mm. and it's true. Certainly, yeah, in 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 England, in uh, in in America, Australia off road is very strong. Mm. Um, but in in other countries, not not the same in every country. Yeah, in okay. in Germany, in Northern Europe, I think on road is is bigger. Mm. Um, Interesting. In, in Southern Europe, it's very much eighth scale. That's the, yep. the uh, in in France and Spain and Italy, they're um, they're very much into eighth scale. Um, and yeah, nitro is still popular in some areas and yeah. and very declining so a lot in others. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's in this era of globalization, it's much easier to yeah. keep in touch with people and, and yeah. find out what's going on in the world compared to what it was a, a few years ago. Now, you, um, you you use the magic words there, eighth scale. I, I would be lynched if I didn't uh, at least ask a little bit about, um, you know, where the, where the where Schumacher is in terms of thinking about eighth scale. We've seen you testing bits and pieces this last 12 months in public in the hands of uh, Olowski and you know a podium at the the electric eight scale Euros uh, semi final appearance at the Nitro uh, eight scale World Championships. Those are encouraging signs. Uh, you know, can you tell us a little bit about you know the thought process within the group at the moment around eight scale? Um, what's what are we likely to see? It's, it's going to take a while. It's okay. still uh, yes. The long term plan is for us to do eight scale. It's uh as the company is gradually growing we're, we're looking for new opportunities and um i think we're pretty well covered in 10th scale now yeah. so uh the next logical step is to do eighth um certainly we've got uh, some of our engineers are very keen some of our drivers I, are very keen to, I bet. to do yeah. it um it's, it's it's a big project because yeah. it's it's all new stuff it's yeah. not uh, um so it, it'll it'll take yeah, it'll take a while. A little the, while. Um, yeah, yeah. And at the moment, we're still learning about it. We, yeah. We've we've made some prototypes um, using quite a few parts from other manufacturers, and 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 we're still learning about it. We're trying things, and uh, from a certain manufacturer's suspension geometry, and and then putting some of our own three D printed parts on it, and trying a few ideas. So. In terms of the design, there's no nothing's finalised yet, mm. so we're at very early stage in the project. Uh, yes, it's been really encouraging that the prototypes mm. have been going very well, and, yeah. and Michael's had some really good results. Um, but it's a long way off having a car. It's okay. probably two or three years. <laughs> oh, okay, so cake day is not coming up anytime soon for the uh, the eight scale cat. Uh, I hear you. I think I hear you. We're a little while away. Yeah, I think. Yeah. It, I mean, it's it's, it's an exciting. Uh, opportunity i guess for you know for something that would be a, 
a completely new platform. And we talked earlier about most of the development being kind of iterative or building on an existing platform. So I imagine for particularly the engineering team uh, and the race team, the chance to do something, you know, completely new uh, would be pretty exciting, uh, pretty enticing. And I'm, you know, for one, would be excited to see what um, the kind of famed Schumacher engineering kind of led philosophies bring to a, to a new category like that. So we will watch very closely uh, to see what we see. Um, we're, we're heading into 2023, and I did just want to ask you about uh, about that. It's a 10th scale off-road world championship year. First one we've had for a few years. Lots of world championship racing has been interrupted over the last few years, and we've just been back to it in in recent uh, times, you've made some uh, fi- final appearances in touring car at the Worlds and, you know, winning that uh, 12 scale World Cup. But heading into this 10 scale off-road year, um, you've got some great young drivers, Olowski we've talked about, uh, people like uh, Jorn Neumann and Daniel Kobovic and then Brock and uh, Blake Chaplin over in the US. This is a big Worlds year, isn't it? And, and I guess what I'm curious about is how, you know, how as a group, as a company, you're thinking about going into the lion's den of 10 scale off-road in the US, indoor, clay, high, high traction surface, you know, taking on some of the world's best on their home kind of turf, if you like that that style of racing they're so used to. What what does the next six or eight or nine months look like as the company prepares, uh, you know, to go world championship racing in that off-road scene in that environment? It's going to be a tough one, uh, certainly. Mm. We, we uh we don't have those type of tracks in England or in Europe really to, to do testing. So it's, it's, yeah, it's not ideal for us having a, um, that, a world on that sort of surface. However, we'll, we'll, we'll give it a shot. We're going mm. to have to spend a bit, of, a bit of money on, on a few American trips for, yeah. for the drivers and, uh, do a few races. Um, we have had some great results in America recently. Mm. Yeah. Um, Michael's just got back from a a trip doing well. He's done very well, yeah. but those were in carpet races, yes. which is very similar sort of conditions to what we yeah. do a lot of in Europe. Um, yeah. So it, it it is going to be tough, but that's that's how we learn, and yeah. we've got to go and expose ourselves to the um, the high level of competition to uh, uh, develop our cars and make sure that we are competitive on on those sort of tracks. So. Well, I think we will go into this world as as the underdog, and um, <laughs> uh, but we'll do our best, and yeah. we've got some great talent in terms of drivers, you do. Um, yeah. and uh, um, there's some really yeah top young guys who are in their prime, and mm. so we we've got a chance, although yeah. it is probably a slim chance. Yeah, do do you have a sense at this at this early stage of you know what some of the little ideas the engineering team might be working on or thinking about or, you know, how much are the, the current platforms likely to evolve uh, for this race? Um, will you do something special for the race, as we've seen, you know, some manufacturers do in the past, or is it, is it going to be about fine-tuning what you've already got? Um, yes. <laughs> I can't tell you what it is. <laughs> <laughs> oh, very beautifully answered. A beautiful answer. <laughs> Uh, I didn't. I wasn't expecting too much in the way of detail. Um, I'm. I'm sure yeah. it's uh, something that would be exercising everybody's minds. And wonderful, I imagine, to have you know someone of the the speed and caliber of uh, Brock over in the US who's been um, doing so well in the last twelve or eighteen months um, to be doing a bit of home soil kind of work uh, along with the European team. Um, 
Yeah. Yeah, Brock's done tremendously well, and uh, uh, it's um, yeah, it's been a while since we've had a really top American driver, and mm. uh, he's yeah doing very well. Mm. Good. Robin, I think I've taken lots of your time and I really appreciate it. I did just want to, um, for a moment, ask one last question. And I, and I guess I'm, you know, interested in, for a company that started in that hyper-competitive world of 112 scale right back, way back when, um, I'm, I'm curious as to how rewarding it was to come back to 12 scale. You talked about there being something like a 30-year gap, you know, to win both stock and modified class world championships in 12 scale in 2020, you know, all those years down the track. And so I guess, I, you know, it struck me as a bit of a homecoming story, a bit of a returning to the roots. And I'm, I'm curious about what that felt like from the inside um, to come back to 12 scale and, and take those big wins on the world stage. It was, it was fabulous. That, that uh, yeah, 2020 mm. worlds in, it was in Milton Keynes, which is oh, about just down the road. Forty-five minutes drive yeah. from 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 our factory in Northampton. Um, it was a fabulous venue, being in a a big uh, indoor shopping centre. Yep. So there were thousands yep. of spectators uh, watching the event. Hmm. It's uh, twelve scales where where I started racing, yep. so it's something yep. I've always been um, very interested in, and uh, um, we. Um, uh, yeah, we got back into 12th and gradually got into it. Um, uh, a, a young guy called Andy Murray, who, who was our, our main on road hmm. engineer, and um, he did the car and he managed to win the stock world. Yeah. And then, uh, Mark Reinhardt, we arranged a, a guest one off uh, agreement <laughs> with him to, uh, to uh, come and drive our 12th scale. And uh, he uh, uh, he's a phenomenal talent and he managed to uh. Yeah turn up and and win so that was well it was a fabulous event it was mm. great that it was it was local the Cecil came along to to watch it and mm. some a lot of our staff came and uh, uh and it was super exciting it was so tense i mm. i think I, I held my breath for 8 minutes <laughs> during that last final <laughs> i bet it's a it's a curious thing the way that some of the world championship racing has evolved and you know twasco is an example um, and then I think touring car this year, you know, where there's now a stock class as well, uh, you know, at that world level, which I think if, you know, if I recall correctly, uh, you know, apart from that first off-road worlds in 1985, there's not been a whole lot of spec or, you know, spec motor class racing at that world level. Um, so that's that's just a curiosity um, that, I, that I see, uh, you know, that's been developing in the last couple of years. Which does just, which actually does raise for me another question, which I hadn't kind of foreshadowed with you. But you know, how much do you does a design team work around you know the difference between spec motor racing and you know full on modified kind of high horsepower racing, whether it's on road or off road? Um, there must be some you know different demands from the chassis and and that the engineers are kind of conscious of as they're doing the design work around the difference between spec and open um, class racing. Yeah, yeah, there are differences. Yes, um, yeah, the open modified classes. I, I guess the main focus generally that yeah. that's where the top level racing is. But um, yeah, if you look at things like the you know, the two wheel drive buggy, we've got uh, on on the stock spec car, we've we've removed the slipper clutch to yeah. reduce yeah. the rotating weight. Mm. Um, we've got. Um, yeah, lighter weight parts on it. Um, carbon chassis versus an alloy chassis. There's there's a, yeah a few subtle changes yeah. and um, 
the demands are a bit different. It's more about efficiency and, um, uh, yeah, the, the the requirements. Yes, it's, it, you need to get the most out of out of the limited power. So it's, yeah. it's yeah. Uh, you t- yeah. tend to have things like thinner belts on the on road cars or yeah. that sort of thing. Um, and in in England, in, in off-road, um, there's no stock racing at all. It's all, it's all yeah. modified. Yeah. Um, it's, it's different in, in different places. America yeah. is uh, the stock class in America is far bigger. Yeah, that that you know, as a as an outsider, that's always struck me as one of the real curiosities of UK racing has been that sole class, you know, sole modified kind of open class, if you like, in off-road. Uh, I've often thought from a distance that seems like to me a really good idea uh, but it's really hard to to uh shift the culture that's so well established say here in australia or in the u.s around spec class racing uh yeah yeah it's interesting i know everyone likes to make an a final and the american approach is that you yeah. keep making more and more classes <laughs> <laughs> over 40s class over 50s class whatever and then everyone makes an a final um, whereas it's, it's quite different in culture in England. We'll have our big our off off road races where we have mm. 120 drivers in a national, and mm. and and someone's going to finish 120th. Yeah. And yeah. Um, but we're all racing modified buggies, yeah. and and if you've got more drivers racing the same class, then you tend to get really close racing. Yes. Like in a race with 120 drivers, it, the uh, yeah, there'll be only maybe sometimes just two or three seconds in qualifying time across a whole final. Yeah. Wow. So it, uh, and it's super close, exciting racing. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and there's, and it's great when you get a real close final, even if you're in the bottom final, if you have a good, good close race and you're evenly matched, then it, it's yeah, really good feeling. I do. I do. You know, again, as an outsider, I, you know, always appreciate kind of keeping an eye on what's happening in the UK scene and that, national series that does seem so um, strongly supported and such incredible racing you know that's helped a little I guess by the geography of you know it's not too far to travel within England to get to a race meeting relative to somewhere like Australia where you know we could spend 20 hours in the car to get from you know my hometown to a a race in Melbourne for example Uh, but I you know I really do love that that what I see from the outside and these days you know almost live on, on YouTube and things like that um, some extraordinary racing. Let, let, so let me uh, just ask then one last question, which is, um, I've said that a few times now, haven't I? But on this topic of, you know, what is it, how does the team go racing in the UK? You know, what what's the, it's home base for you, the factory's there. You know, do you have a really strong kind of presence around some of those UK national races, um, both with your team drivers and supporting customers, that sort of, you know, how how important is that home racing scene to the company? It is very important, yes. Um, we've got a good network of team drivers, or not just in the UK, but around the world as well. So we clearly can't, can't be at every event. We do mm. rely on our team to represent yes. us at all yeah. the local tracks. Um, and then we would usually only meet the, the, those team drivers then, often like the top driver in, in a local club, will then go and do the nationals. So yes. we'll see them at the nationals and they'll be part of the team at the nationals and yeah. we will try to pit together and work together. Mm. But then that driver will go back to his local club and be on his own and yeah. uh, hopefully will be a good representative for us and doing yeah. well, showing what the cars can do and and uh, and helping other drivers with setup knowledge and that sort of thing. Mm. Um, 
But at the big national events, we, we're there with, with staff and we take spare parts back up and we, we have a van and we take gazebos for the outdoor races mm. and, and set up the pits and try and get a good team atmosphere, try and get everyone working together and, and helping each other and, uh, yeah. um, and and working as a team and uh, and trying to get the results. Um, so, yeah, the, the team is very important to us. Mm. Yeah, we've got a, really, a great team. We've got some great drivers and 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 a lot of really nice people and uh so yeah it's it's it's, to us. it strikes me robin that that's no surprise and it's a you know it is a reflection of the, the high regard with which schumacher has held over many years and you know and the way that you've gone about uh, your work and about running your business um would attract uh, those kinds of people to to race with you i think we we should draw a line in the sand there let you get on with your day um thank you so much uh, for taking the time to chat with me uh today I, I appreciate your openness your generosity with your time and stories um and some little tiny clues about what might be coming down the line that you've just peppered through the conversation robin i hope you have a lovely christmas uh for you and your family and all the best uh to the company for all uh that 2023 holds Thank you so much for chatting with me today. Thank you, Scott. Thanks for the chat. It's uh, been my pleasure.